getting to a section in the book of Acts where each chapter is going to have a lot to do with Paul's missionary journeys. And if we're not careful, the book of Acts, and especially these latter chapters, can kind of read like it's just a biography about Paul and his missionary buddies. And there's a huge problem with reading the book of Acts or any book of the Bible in that way. The Bible's not about Paul. It might make mention of some of Paul's exploits, or if you're reading through the Psalms or the books of Samuel, of David's exploits, if you're reading through the Pentateuch, of Moses' exploits, or if you're reading through the various different sections of the Bible. But the Bible is not a book of a bunch of stories, of a bunch of heroes, and the book of Acts is certainly not a story about Paul and his band of all-stars. The Bible is a book about God. God is the hero of the Bible. That should go without saying. You might hear that and say, yeah, no, duh, but I can't tell you how many sermons that I've sat and listened to where it presents some hero, and the conclusion is, here is this hero, now go and be like this hero. That is not gospel preaching. That's not the purpose of the Bible. God is the hero. God is the one who is always put on display. God's works are the ones that are commended to the next generation. God is the one that we are told to emulate. God is the hero of his own narrative. And as I've said in our very first sermon in the series, 18 long chapters ago, the book of Acts is not a story about the Acts of the Apostles. It is the story about God the Holy Spirit glorifying God the Father through the preaching of the good news of God the Son. Another couple of reasons why reading a book like it's a biography of the missionary exploits of Paul and his band of merry men might be dangerous. Well, for one, it can become very repetitive. If you're just reading these stories, just like they're a bunch of stories, they can begin to become strikingly similar as we approach the end of the book of Acts and even seemingly redundant. But before we allow our minds to go there, we have to realize that this book was written by God, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would not repeat anything for redundancy And that every single word, or as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, every jot and tittle, meaning not just words, but even down to little punctuation marks over the words, are divinely put there by God for a God-breathed, God-given purpose. The second danger in reading it like a biography is that it can read like it's a missions all-star book. When I was in Bible school, I remember that we would actually read these different missionary all-star books. And it would present all of these famous missionaries like they were like baseball trading cards or something like that. And it would almost read like a superhero 
novel of flawless men and women who would go backpacking through some undiscovered lands, and it was pretty far from the truth, and in some cases, even more so. Um, A third reason is that it can give you a pretty faulty view of what missions is, and that's actually what we're going to be dialing into this morning. Missions is certainly about the proclamation of a powerful message, but it's more than that. Missions can certainly be exotic, like you see in these last few chapters, but often it isn't exotic. Missions can often be very fast-paced and very exhilarating, but more often than not, it's not fast-paced or exhilarating. It's slow, methodical, plotting faithfulness. And perhaps most importantly, it's very easy to talk about missions, but miss the point of missions completely. The whole point of missions is discipleship. And the whole point of discipleship is the glory of God. You could go to the most exotic jungle in the world. You could go to the most unreached people group and go and speak with people who have never met another missionary in their life. And you could go there in the name of Jesus. But if there is no discipleship taking place, you are not engaging in missions. Yet you can go right out your front door and never leave the town that you live in. Think about Jesus. Jesus never left about a 50-mile radius in his entire life. So if we use that defunct definition of missions, that it's going somewhere way over there, then we would have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus was not an effective missionary by those standards if you have that mindset but you can never leave your own area but if you live your life as a disciple of Jesus who is sent out to make disciples of Jesus then you are doing the work of a missionary the last couple weeks we spoke a lot about this idea of being provoked for mission and when we take this idea of being provoked and we begin to intentionally invest into the lives of others in an uber-intentional manner, then we are engaging in the commission to make disciples, and then we are effectively living as missionaries. So over the last couple of weeks, as we talked about being provoked, it kind of stemmed from this word that Luke used in Acts chapter 17 as as Paul observed this city that was full of idols, and it says that his heart was provoked within him. And before we get into our text, I want to read to you another beautiful text where Paul goes from talking about being provoked, but then he actually takes this provocation that was put there by God and talks about how he invested in those who he loved and engaged in making disciples. First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, For you know yourselves, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, that though we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God 
in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or, or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether it was from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Listen how Paul describes his intentionality. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He wasn't just provoked just to preach some message and springboard off of it. He's saying we were gentle. We lived amongst you. We took care of you. We had a heart that went out for you. And he uses this example of a mother nursing a child. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And that's when discipleship begins. We take this message, this proclamation of the good news of Jesus, and we live it out amongst a people. And we say we're eager to share with you and to proclaim to you this good news of Jesus. But not just proclaim, but to live it out amongst you and to love you and to share not only this news, but also to share our very lives because we've gone beyond provoked. We are now incensed and we desire to see God do amazing things amongst you. So here in this passage, we're going to see five different portraits of missions as they play themselves out in the context of discipleship. So in our text, Acts 18, starting in verse 1, it says, Now after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come out from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because... He was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. So as the passage starts off, Paul is engaging in something that should be relevant to each one of us, making disciples through the trade that God has given to you. As chapter 17 ends and chapter 18 begins, Paul's leaving at Athens and he's arriving in another Greek city known as Corinth. And he finds some converts to Judaism there. He finds Aquila and Priscilla who had come from Rome to Corinth. The Roman emperor Claudius had begun to persecute the Jewish people throughout the empire and he commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome, to leave their homes, to leave their jobs, in many cases to leave their families, to leave that which was familiar to them. So that's the backdrop before he meets Priscilla and Aquila. And this couple left Rome and they ended up where Paul was at in Corinth. And as it often goes, 
what Satan had intended for evil, God is about to co-opt this and use it for something very good. Because in leaving Rome, they were able to meet the Apostle Paul. They just happened to work in the same trade as the Apostle Paul. They were tent makers, it says in verse 3. You may have actually heard of the expression tent makers to use, be used to describe people who have a day job to be able to pay for the passions that they have in life. Well, this is where the actual expression was coined from. These people were literally tent makers. And just a very, very brief tangent, but I was just stunned by this as I was studying through this text. Isn't it amazing how often things just happen to come together and how many coincidences just happen in the kingdom of God? I mean, they just happened to get kicked out of their city. At the exact same time when Paul just happened to get kicked out of Athens. And out of all the places that they could have gone, they both just happened to end up in Corinth. And as they end up in this huge city, they just happen to come across each other's paths. And then they just happen to have the same trade. And God just happens to use all of this to save these guys. I wonder how many of us have similar stories where God just happens to use something seemingly tragic or seemingly unconnected to anything in our lives in particular in order to perform some sort of miracle that could not have occurred any other way. So Paul gets to work and starts making tents because people weren't going to pay him to preach the gospel and to plant churches because up until then people didn't know that there was a gospel or that they were in need of churches. So why would they pay him for something that they didn't even know existed? And back then, it was actually pretty simple. If you didn't work, you didn't eat. So Paul did not see his trade as a detriment to making disciples. Paul saw his trade as an arena to make disciples. Paul had a proper Christian understanding of what work is supposed to be and the gift that work is. Guys, work is not a result of the fall, as sometimes is taught. Man was told to go and subdue the earth and work before sin or the curse ever entered the earth. It was because of the curse that work now comes with thorns and thistles and by the sweat of our brow. But work in and of itself has no curse involved in it. I, I know for me, I just absolutely love work. I can't wait to get to work. When I'm sick, I can't wait until I'm better because I can't wait to be able to get to my job. Some people actually do enjoy work and Paul had a good understanding of work it's not supposed to be seen as something that gets in the way of making disciples work is just one of many gifts that God has given to his people to use in our calling to make disciples I mean just think of the early disciples in the Bible what were 
Peter, James, and John doing when Jesus reached them with the gospel and told them to come and follow me? Yeah. Also known as what? Work. They were at work. He said, you have this job of being fishermen. Well, let me show you. I'm going to actually make you fishers of men. Think of Matthew. He was sitting at a tax booth on the side of the road, working as a tax collector when Jesus said, get up and follow me. So Matthew throws a party, and guess who Matthew invited to the party? His co-workers came and had the opportunity to meet Jesus. There's this famous story of this young, foul-mouthed, street-kid punk named D.L. Moody who worked in a shoe store in Boston and thankfully, the clerk at the shoe store saw his job as an opportunity to be a disciple maker. And because he had this redeemed view of work, millions and millions of people heard the name of Jesus and were reached with the gospel. I couldn't tell you, even if I wanted to, how many conversations I've gotten in to with people who look at their job as if it's the thing that's keeping them from being the missionaries that they believe that God is calling them to be or that they could be and they believe that they could be so much more effective if it just wasn't for this stupid job that I have to go through. When we see it through a biblical worldview, we actually see that the job is a gift from God and it's a unique opportunity Opportunity that God has given us to leverage those opportunities to be able to make disciples. Because guess what? God cares so much about the people that you work with. And he cares so much about the people that you see on a day-to-day -day basis that he raised you up to be a messenger of his gospel to people that wouldn't hear it because they're not going to come to church on Sunday. They're not going to come here to hear the gospel. So God equipped you and sent you there so that they would be able to hear it. And I should point out that we don't get that opportunity by sitting around the break room and complaining about our, our boss, gossiping about our coworkers and then complaining about our lousy paycheck, the same paycheck that your coworkers get, and the same paycheck that God uses to provide for you and for your needs and for your family. Believe it or not, when we refuse to engage in those activities and we stay above the fray, we're actually engaging in the initial steps of beginning to make disciples because by our faith in Christ we're showing an example of something that's different and something that's worth emulating to our co-workers which is actually what the word disciple means it means that you are showing something where people can observe you as a learner and take the opportunity to emulate something as they become your disciple in a sense so we're going to talk um, about going from provoked to invested in order to bloom as missionaries right where we're planted. But as we do, I encourage you to prayerfully make use of what you do 
as an aim towards making relationships. Make use of what you do as an aim towards making relationships. And I'm talking about real relationships. Relationships where your coworkers know that you are a man or a woman who deeply cares about that person. I remember after 9-11, I, I was working at a boatyard, I was a, a bottom painter scraping barnacles, and my coworkers, they, they all called me Rev, and um, they all came and, and they gathered around and they were confused and they were hurting just like everybody else was at that time. And they asked me, under the cool of the hull of a boat, if I could lead them in a Bible study and in prayer because they didn't know what to do with the emotions that they were feeling. It wasn't because I was anything special. It's because I had invested in those relationships with my coworkers as a Christian, and as a Christian man, these people knew that I cared about them. And from using the opportunities of work to make relationships, we're sometimes able to take that opportunity to use those relationships to actually make disciples. Is there anybody here today? I, I usually, when I ask these questions, they're rhetorical, and I don't want a show of hands, but I, I, I'm, I'm curious. Is there anybody here today because a Christian coworker took the time to invest in you and share the love of Christ with you through a work relationship. Anybody? Wow, okay. That, that's, 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 that's pretty awesome. Anybody here that got saved because a coworker strapped on their work boots day in and day out and realized that they were going into a mission field? Amen. So guess what? You're looking around and see souls that you're going to spend eternity with because people went to their job and saw it more as just something to punch a clock at, but they saw it as something to invest in. They saw it as a mission field. Work is not the enemy of discipleship and missions. It's an opportunity. Let me repeat that. Work is not the enemy of discipleship and missions. It's an opportunity. And before moving on, let me just bring up one of the most direct and admirable um, of all disciple-making professions. Um, Christians stay-at-home moms invest in their kids daily as their trade. That's their job. They invest in their kids daily as their trade. Stay-at-home parents get the opportunity to invest in their chi children daily. They're actually making disciples of their children as they live out their calling. Can you think of a more direct calling when it comes to making disciples who make disciples than being able to just invest in these moldable little minds day in and day out. And not only that, but they're able to connect with others who have the same calling and share Jesus and how they live out that calling both with other Christian home, Christian stay-at-home parents as they mutually encourage one another and disciple one another, and as they meet other stay-at-home moms while they're out and about, and they get, they're able to give an account for the hope that is within them. 
I spend a lot of time on the last one, so these next two I'm going to go a little bit more quickly. But another approach we see to making disciples is making disciples amidst opposition. Look with me at verses 5 through 11. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived at Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews and the, that, Christ was, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to a house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God amongst them. Remember how I told you guys that Paul played a one-string guitar and that every single sermon that he preached had one point? Well, in case anybody was like, hey, you're making too much of this, again, I point to another one of his sermons. And each sermon I've been able to just show you and prove it. Look at verse 5. What did he do? Day and night he sat and reasoned with them that Jesus was the Christ. So there he goes again, and he starts playing his one-string guitar to preach that Jesus is the Christ. And there's this group of people there that respond poorly. Keep that in mind as we lament slipping away from the Judeo-Christian value system that once led our country. That there has always been a group of people that have responded poorly. In every generation, there's been a group of people who have responded poorly. In fact, Jesus said that more often than not, it would be the larger percentage of people that would respond poorly. To take it a step further, if the majority is not responding poorly, you have to wonder if you're actually preaching a saving gospel. Because Jesus said, wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few would find it. But in the context of our passage and of our sermon, I really want you to think about something. I mean, really think about this. Wrap your minds around this. Look at the opposition that's described in verses 5 and 6. It says that they opposed him and they reviled him. That word reviled is a really strong word. And yet he continued preaching. And yet he continued baptizing. And he was undeterred. And the most amazing part about all of that that I want to point out is in verse 11 it says... And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So he kept his hand to the plow here at Corinth amidst that opposition where he's being reviled, according to the text, for a year and six months. Most people would never experience the sweetness that he experienced on the other side because they bail at the first sign of discomfort. And as we talk about making disciples, how powerful of a witness must it have been 
that he would not just leave when discomfort came, but he showed up and kept being faithful day in and day out. In spite of opposition, he was there. In spite of personal loss, he was there. In spite of personal discomfort, he was there. I mean, really, think about that. The next time that you're tempted to quit or complain just because things are not running as smoothly as you think that they should be running at work. Rarely are things ever going to run perfectly, yet making disciples means that you continue to keep your hand to the plow even when things are not running perfectly. Even in the midst of potentially difficult or very frustrating situations, instead of giving up or complaining, Paul saw that as an opportunity to make disciples. And I just have to wonder how many times we miss out on an opportunity to make disciples because we would rather leverage it as an opportunity to complain rather than seek Jesus for the opportunity to make disciples. Look, making disciples is messy work. Let me repeat that. Making disciples is messy work. Churchianity should be clean. That's why people love churchianity. I don't ever have to get messy if I just stay here within the confines of churchianity. But making disciples in the real world means rolling up your sleeves and living with a day-to-day willingness to get your hands dirty. Nobody ever said that it was supposed to be easy. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. He said that it was supposed to be difficult, that all who live godly in Christ would be persecuted. People rarely respond the way that we have it planned out in our minds. Oh, that we would be the type of people who would step into the fray and be willing to get messy when making disciples. And let me wrap up these last few quickly. We see another missionary approach of Paul in the next few verses, and that's making disciples in the midst of failure and rejection. In verses 10, or 12 through 17, it says, Now Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia and the Jews, made a united attack against Paul and brought him before the tribunal. And then you go on to read about what this tribunal looked like, and then skipping down to verse 16, and it says, Then he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So if you look at these verses, Paul's initial attempt to make disciples was not met with encouragement. There was rejection, there was hardship, there were people who paid no mind or paid no attention to any of this. And I want to just speak to you pastorally from my heart for a moment. I've had way too many conversations with people who have stepped out into something that they thought that God was calling them to, to make disciples, but it wasn't met with the receptiveness that they envisioned. So they start a Bible study, and nobody comes. They start a prayer meeting, and nobody comes. They start this ministry, and nobody comes. 
They want to start another ministry that God put on their heart, and nobody seems like they want to match that passion and get it off the ground. Or it's met with attendance that was not like they assumed. Or people just don't seem like they cared all that much. And they're not seeing people respond the way that they hoped. And way too often in that situation I hear people say things like, why is it that nobody at this church really cares about coming together for fellowship? Really? Nobody? It couldn't just be that you're judgmental and... Maybe there are people coming together for fellowship. Nobody in this church ever meets for prayer. And nobody cares about praying in this. Really? Nobody? Because we just prayed like a half hour ago back there, and you would have been more than welcome to come back if you wanted to come. I promise you there's people praying. Or people just don't care about meeting for worship these days. To which I always ask two questions. Really? Nobody? Because you've taken a poll and you've taken a vote and everybody replied that nobody cares about the thing that you care about. And who are you really doing this for if you take this perceived rejection so personally? Uh, were you doing this for God or were you doing this for you? Were you really trying to make disciples or were you trying to throw a successful event? If we're trying to make disciples... If you look at the ministry of Jesus, sometimes there were three, sometimes there were 30, sometimes there were 300, and even when there were 6,000, you see them start to go away, and Peter's like, Jesus, you're not as popular as you used to be. And Jesus is like, that's cool, do you want to peace out too while they're on their way out? And Peter's like, no, I'll rethink the way I asked that question. Um, the next one is that making disciples should not be dependent on any one man. In verses 18 through 23, you start to see that, that Paul, he's about to leave. And then it says, and they came to Ephesus in verse 19, and he left them there. But he himself went out to the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. And they asked him to stay for a longer period, and he declined. But on taking leave, he said to them, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus, Paul did not allow discipleship to be dependent upon him. Look, discipleship should never be dependent on one man. And if you guys have zoned out, I'm going to ask you, please pay attention to what you're about to hear because this is mission critical to what it is that I'm trying to get across from this passage. And it has a couple of different applications to it. Why do people think that they need the pastor to sign off on an event in order for you to get involved in making disciples. Discipleship's not supposed to be an event anyway. I've read this book cover to cover. Show me where discipleship is an event to be attended to rather than life that's supposed to be done together. But that's, there's an even bigger flaw in that thinking. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all discipleship should have to go through the pastor. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's the pastor's job to make disciples. I can't tell you how many times pastors get this call or this email. Hey, pastor, I really have it on my heart to see this ministry started. Hey, that's great. Go ahead and start it. Well, I was thinking you could do it. Well, wasn't that nice of you to think that you could have me do it? (laughs) Where do you see that in the Bible? It doesn't say that anywhere. Or let me say more accurately, nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's any more my job to make disciples than it is your job to make disciples. What it does say in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 is that God gave some as apostles, shepherds, evangelists, and teachers to make disciples and to equip you to make disciples for the work of of the ministry. So it's our job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not to be the ones that do the work of the ministry. In other words, it's our job to make disciples who are called to make disciples. So if we agree that discipleship should not depend on the pastor, I want to ask a question of your heart, because I don't know the answer to this, but it's just a universal maxim that I've seen so many times that I could just say that it's truth. If discipleship's not dependent on the pastor, then why is it the norm that when a pastor leaves a church, discipleship leaves with him? You ever think about that? I mean, we say that it's not the pastor's job to make disciples, but as soon as a pastor leaves, the church often dies and the discipleship systems often die. If discipleship is really the way that it's supposed to be in the Bible, I should be able to leave here and get hit by a bus, and the only thing that would happen is you guys make disciples at my funeral. I'm I'm being legit, man. It, it, It is the pastor's responsibility to pour into people to be able to train disciple makers. It's the church's responsibility to create a culture of discipleship. That's why pastors burn out, folks. That's why pastor, did you know that pastor has the second highest burnout rate of any profession other than NFL football player? That's how long we last. Because there's this expectation and pressure from hundreds of people that, hey, dance, monkey, dance. And while you're at it, make me a better Christian. And make me know the Bible, even if I'm not going to read it when I go home. Make sure that you make me know the Bible really well, because that's your job as a pastor. No, it's not. It doesn't say that in the Bible. And the last point here is making disciples of the next generation. Look with me at our final verses in our passage. It says, Now there was this Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and been fervent in the spirit, and he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples and welcomed him. I'm going to pick up on the rest of that next week. But look at the pattern here. Paul made disciples in those first couple of verses. Aquila and Priscilla, they get saved They come to know Jesus. So Paul is a disciple. 
Paul makes disciples, and now those disciples that he makes goes and takes Apollos aside, and they make disciples. So you see a man making disciples, who then made disciples, who then made disciples. And that's the pattern that you see in the Bible, investing in those who are going to invest in others, who are going to invest in others, who are going to invest in others, who are going to invest in others. That's biblical Christianity, not running the sickest, trickiest programs up here, not you all following the one-man show, but you going out as disciple-makers who make disciples, who make disciples, and make disciples. And this is really important because people often want to remain the ones who are invested in. Look, there's nothing wrong being invested in, but there is something wrong if you've been a Christian for 30 years. And you're not making disciples because you're like, well, it's so, when's somebody going to start a Bible study for me? When's somebody going to do the training for me? When's somebody going to blah, blah, blah for me? Look at Priscilla and Aquila. These people are saved a matter of weeks. And they're going out and making disciples. Mature Christians, you don't need more stuff to make you more mature Christians before you can go out and reach people who don't even have the hope of the gospel and who are not Christians. So I have a couple of application patterns, uh, questions for you guys. How can a church filled with people investing, committed to investing in one another, go so much deeper than expecting a senior pastor to be the one who's investing in everybody. I mean, how much more powerful would we be rather than it being my job to go out and make disciples if every one of you, when you walk out this door, you say, it's my job to make disciples. It's my job to make disciples. It's my job to make disciples. Why is it necessary for a culture of discipleship to start with a culture of investing in other people? What happens to a church that stops investing and in people who only want to be invested in? And I just want to ask you a heart question that if you don't have an answer, pray. Who are you currently investing in? Who are you currently raising up for the next generation? Who are you currently making disciples of? And what does it look like for you to take your life and invest it into the life of another? Jesus, thank you so much for the pattern that we see throughout Scripture of you grab us, you nurture us, you save us, and you don't wait for us to be complete in our knowledge, but you send us. And as incomplete as we are, you even use us. Thank you that you would use a simpleton like me. And I pray that we would be emboldened by your spirit to be disciple makers in Jesus' name.